We will be considering this morning uh, Mark chapter 11, and we'll actually, uh, you, can, you can see the uh, section we'll be uh, studying on page 9 of your bulletin. If you have your Bibles, you could certainly turn there to Mark 11. I actually will begin reading with verse 11 uh, because I think it's, it's important to see the structure of this whole passage. And, and we'll see that verse 11, though in most of our Bibles it's included in the section before, it really should be grouped with the section that follows. So, Mark uh, 11, 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. Lord, as we come to this passage of scripture, we thank you for it. We thank you for uh, using uh, Mark and, and Peter, who uh, was likely giving this uh, to Mark, and Lord, that the Holy Spirit uh, guided every word and the Holy Spirit wanted to reveal to us 
uh, more of who Christ is and what our salvation means in him. So Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word. We ask Lord and would expect it because of your favor and goodness to us in Christ Jesus, amen. Now kids, if you've ever seen a rope, you'll notice that the rope, it, whether it's a really big thick rope or even a smaller rope or cord, is made up of many strands that are tightly woven together. And that's what makes the rope strong, is the, the tight weave of these strands. And in this passage, as we look at the overall structure of the passage, Mark weaves these two stories of the fig and the temple into a tight weave. And that's why the, sto the story as a whole has such a strong impact because each of the parts of this shine light uh, into the other. They're, they each put a spotlight onto the other. The fig tree into what Jesus does in the temple and the temple and the fig tree. So we have a structure here. We started in verse 11 with Jesus looking around the temple. Then you have the fig tree. Then you have the temple again the next day. Then you have the fig tree. And in the section that we didn't read that comes next, back to the temple. So we'll see, and I want to kind of lay out the meaning before we dig in, but the destruction of the fig tree is a symbol of the judgment that will fall on the temple. And that judgment is executed in a way or, or prophesied through Christ's actions as he overturns the table. Jesus is saying here, I will not abide this abuse of God's house. And so after this section, the temple remains the scene of conflict until finally Jesus leaves the temple in chapter 13 and he pronounces its ultimate doom that not one stone will be, uh, will, will sit upon another one of this temple. So this overturning of the tables, this declaration, this prophecy is a prophecy of judgment and the tree uh, withering is a sign of that uh, Judaism of that day, the way the temple is being used is going to be destroyed ultimately. God's destruction of the temple actually 40 years after this is the ultimate no, I will not abide this in my house. So as we look at verse 11, there have been scholars, liberal scholars in the past that describe Jesus as after the uh, entrance uh, as in the royal procession on the donkey, he just, it says, he looks at the temple like a tourist and then leaves. But that's because he really doesn't see the structure of this passage that this verse is looking forward 
and that Jesus in looking around is not looking at it like a tourist. He's full of purpose. He leaves to take action the next day. You might say he's doing reconnaissance here in verse 11, sizing up the situation, planning his next move. Nothing happens, but that builds the tension and drama until the next day. And, and all of this is interpreted by the fig tree itself. So we come then the next day, as they're coming back to Jerusalem, uh, they see this fig tree. And it's an unusual miracle. It's the last miracle in Mark, and it's purely destructive. And on the face of it, it just seems uh, like there's no point to it. It even seems petty and spiteful, and, and people have interpreted that way, as though Jesus was saying, oh, what, no fruit? Well, take this, you know, and just blights the, the fig tree because it didn't have any fruit, and he wanted some fruit. Now, it happened, and you might even ask, why would Mark record it if this is what happened? What's his point in recording this? Well, again, we see the deep and tragic meaning of this, that this is an acted out parable of God's judgment on Israel. And trees and fig trees in particular were used in the Old Testament in this very way. In Jeremiah 8, uh, God says, when I would gather them, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed from them. The, there was a, a lot of background, a lot of talk about the fruit of trees not being there as a sign of Israel's fruitlessness. And in Luke 13, Jesus gives a parable of a man who uh, had a fig tree planted in the midst of his vineyard, and he looked for three years for it to bear fruit, but it didn't. And then he has this discussion with his uh, gardener, should we tear it or should we cut it down or not? Because it has no fruit. So this idea of fruitlessness uh, was something very prominent. Even John the Baptist came and said, the ax is right to the root of the tree. And if there's no fruit, the tree is going to be cut down. So this was regular biblical thinking. And when Mark underscores the fact that this was not the season for figs, he's emphasizing this is a symbolic act. Jesus knew what he would find or wouldn't find. And Mark is underscoring that this is symbolic, a symbolic action so that the fig tree represents Israel, and this is an acted out parable against Israel along the lines of, of biblical thinking in Old and New Testament. Because of its fruitlessness, it will be destroyed. In the Old Testament, the prophet uh, Micah, in chapter 7 of his uh, prophecy, 
bemoans the situation he faces as a man of God uh, and seeing the people around him. Woe is me, for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. It's a graphic, uh, metaphorical, beautiful way to say, uh, to, to declare the fruitlessness of Israel. And so Jesus is dramatizing the very end of the temple because the, the fig tree actually completely withers from the root up. The curse on the fig tree is this symbol of God's judgment on the temple. And even when Christ dies, we see that the great curtain is in the temple is split from top to bottom. Now that doesn't mean so much that now the temple, uh, the, the way to God has been opened by the death of Christ. No, this, is a, this symbolizes, it represents the judgment of God that has come upon the temple that these people who are named that by the name of God have actually crucified uh, the Messiah. And of course, in their actions, we all participate. We all are the guilty ones. We all are under God's judgment uh, by, by nature. And then of course, there's the splitting of the temple and then 40 years later, the actual destruction of the temple, or the splitting of the curtain, and then the actual destruction of the temple. So here's the fig tree uh, prophecy uh, that, that is done as they're going into uh, Jerusalem. And so he comes to uh, Jerusalem and he comes to this place that is the court of the Gentiles. Now, on the Mount of Olives, we understand that there were places where all of this could be done, and yet it's been set up in the very court of the Gentiles, the one place where they can pray. Because to go further, you're faced with this uh, saying that's in Greek and Latin and Aramaic, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. That's pretty rough. You want to try it? Try it. But we're not responsible for what's going to happen to you if you try to come any further. So this is the one place where Gentiles, and uh, this is where, say, people who were considering uh, Judaism or considering uh, Yahweh to, to worship, uh, this is the one place they could come uh, to pray. And it speaks here of the money changers. Uh, there, there was a temple tax established in Exodus chapter 30 of a half shekel. And so there was this uh, money, the shekel in uh, the, the city of Tyre that they're using as uh, the closest thing to it. And so people would come and, and receive their temple tax money so that they could give to uh, the, the temple. <clears throat> now, Jesus is not condemning the exchange of money, that was necessary. He's not condemning the sale of animals, that was necessary. He's condemning where it was taking place. 
And Mark underscores that by quoting Isaiah, or, or Jesus by quoting Isaiah, uh, that the Lord's house, my house, will be a place of prayer for the nations. So, as one scholar writes, Jesus is not cleansing the temple, really. As the one who's coming in the name of the Lord, he is closing it down. Now, he didn't close down this area. It was like 35 acres. That's how big this was. And it would be, in all, a relatively small disturbance. It was certainly enough for the uh, Sanhedrin, this, the uh, leaders of Israel, to take note of. <clears throat> and but, but the Lord wouldn't have wanted to cause a huge giant ruckus that would have uh, thrown everything into confusion uh, and it would uh, not be his timetable of, of, of the uh, Passover and when he was going to give up his life. But it was a prophetic statement. It was a statement that this temple is over. And it was a declaration that this cannot go on and will not go on. Uh, Judaism uh, was involved, the, the leadership of oppression and dispossession of the Jewish masses. You may recall where Jesus looks upon the people and he says, uh, they're like sheep without a shepherd, which recalls statements in the Old Testament that uh, the shepherds are not feeding and caring for uh, my sheep. So the people suffered under the oppression of the upper-class, power-hungry, resurrection-denying, compromising Sadducees and the oppression of the conservative, prideful, self-righteous Pharisees, both of which held the common people in contempt. But here is Christ pointing to the promise that foreigners will enjoy the full rights in the worship of God. Uncircumcised people. And it was so hard for the disciples to really get this, that people who were not Jews were going to be admitted into the people of God, those people who were not circumcised. It took a vision to Peter to convince him to go and preach to uncircumcised uh, Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11. But he is promising this. So here, Jesus is saying the primary reason for the existence of the temple for worship and prayer is being crowded out, especially in light of the promises that all people will be gathered into temple worship. And here Jesus is coming to the temple. He's declaring himself by this action, by riding in with the donkey a few days earlier, that he is the coming Messiah. And there was great expectancy of what the Messiah would do. Great expectancy. But the expectancy was that he would come and he would cleanse Jerusalem of the Gentiles. He would remove all foreigners from, Judea, from, from the area. And so the Messiah was expected to purge Jerusalem and the temple 
of the Gentiles and aliens and foreigners, but Jesus does the opposite. He doesn't clear the temple of Gentiles. He clears the temple for the Gentiles. That's remarkable. It's a remarkable action. And for him to declare this uh, in looking forward to when the gospel will reach all nations and you are diametrically opposed. You're abusing and subverting the whole ultimate point of true religion to reach the whole world. And so, according to Jewish writings, the Messiah would exclude the nations by literally one Jewish writing to purge them from Jerusalem and cast them out. But Jesus is saying, I'm including the very people that you think Messiah uh, would exclude. And so this is, in this prophetic action, it is opening the way for Gentile worship at the very time of the Passover. And the Passover is, the, is what Jesus uh, looked to, and, and he took the Passover meal, and he described himself in those terms that he now is the bread, he is the wine, his death is the food, his death provides the meal and, and the peace with God that we can have. He is the fulfillment of Passover. And so at this remarkable time where you might say the Jews are, are closing ranks and excluding everyone else from their tight fellowship that they think they have with God, then Jesus is opening it to many. As John himself says when he's writing in 1 John 2, that his propitiation, that means he bears away the wrath of God from us. A wonderful word. It's a long word, but it's a wonderful word. He's the propitiation that bears away the wrath of God so it doesn't fall on us. But John says, and he's writing as a Jew, he says, not only for us, but he's the propitiation for the whole world. His death is announced to everyone. Anyone can have it of all the world. And it's very interesting in the Gospel of John when the Gentiles show up to meet Jesus. Right then, Jesus says, now the God of this world is cast down. Now I will glorify my Father. And he's talking about his death. The sign of the Gentiles, it's time for me to die. It's time for my death to be made known to the whole world. And that's why in John, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Messiah was not just a Messiah for the Jews, but God so loved the whole world that he gave his son. And the great irony here is that this denouncement of Jesus, this overturning, this declaration that this place has now become like a robber's den where you go out and do all these evil things and you're in here, your little cave after you've done all this evil um, and, and you're living in such terrible ways to oppressing people. Uh, now all this is, it's not a place of worship, it's like a, a robber's den. And that reflects Old Testament uh, theology there as well. But 
But the reason, the immediate occasion then for his arrest and execution is that he would denounce the temple. The very meaning of Judaism at that point. And this is why he brings on the hostility of the Jewish leaders. But here is the irony of it. Jesus is fighting for the nations here. He is fighting for the holiness of the temple, its holy use of being used to uh, so that people might seek God and find God in it, even the whole world. But now, in the hands of sinful men, this temple has completely been ruined. And so, as we look at what happens in the death of Christ and his resurrection, it is clear that God is building a new temple of the people of God, built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, that he uh, creates this new temple, this new people of God uh, at, as the now long-awaited atonement that is the, the, the final fulfillment of all the death of lambs that have ever died. They say that Four, day, four years before the temple was destroyed, the year that the temple was completed, it's even now under construction, that over 250,000 lambs were sacrificed. Thousands of priests even were run ragged trying to handle this massive atonement of all these lambs. And now Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Um, Jesus, who has now become the new, uh, created the new people of God. And you get this idea in a wonderful way in several places in the New Testament uh, of how the, the ministry to the Gentiles is actually the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament. It's what the promise is pointed to all along. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 15, when Paul and uh, Barnabas are reporting about their work with the Gentiles, uh, James stands and says, hey, they've related about the Gentiles and, and how God is taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. And he says, this agrees with what the prophets say. And then he says, here's what Amos says in Amos chapter 9. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Isn't that amazing that something so Jewish as the rebuilding of the tent of David and James is saying, when now that we see the Gentiles being gathered in, we see the rebuilding of the tent of David, the fulfillment of the rich promises in the Old Testament that are, are being accomplished now as God builds his new people. So you and I, especially as Gentiles, need to see this as an action of salvation. It's a, it's a display of Christ's passion for the nations his heart beats with this vision and passion of the prophets. And then finally, we come to uh, the mountain. And I've 
try to dramatize this by the fig tree and the tables and, and the mountain. And in a way, it looks, uh, some people have almost, uh, uh, thought that this is kind of tacked on. Where did the whole thing of prayer come in suddenly? We understand about the, uh, the destruction of the vine or, or the fig tree and how this tells us that he's not here to restore the temple. He's actually going to bring it down. As he says later, not one stone will be left uh, from another. But what we need to see is now this talk of prayer comes on the heels of what Jesus says uh, in the temple that my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. So the, the picture that Mark is weaving for us here in this tight weave is that the house of prayer that has been the house of prayer and should be the house of prayer for the nations is going to be taken away and now a new house of prayer is formed. So the Jerusalem temple is now being replaced by the praying community of those who belong to Messiah. And you can imagine these uh, Gentiles who are the main recipients of this uh, gospel in likely Rome, how encouraging this is for them. Uh, for they have been dispossessed and attacked in so many ways. And, and yet here Jesus is, is saying, you, you are the ones to, uh, for whom I will answer prayer. And so the, the prayer is presented as something not just as a private transaction between one of us and God, but it's something that the whole community undertakes together, believing God together in prayer. And obviously, he's pointing to the miraculous here. It's, the, it's God's power working powerfully through a human word spoken. And what's remarkable about this is that you would think Jesus says, okay, look, that's, that's me. That's my word, right? I can say something to the fig tree, but don't you try this yourself, so to speak, right? But no, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't distinguish and say, well, this is what I could accomplish, but there's not much that you can do. It's quite the opposite, isn't it? It reminds me of what James does in the, toward the end of his letter where he talks about Elijah who prayed that the rain would stop and it stopped and then he prayed that it would begin and it began again and you'd think he might say, now that was Elijah and we're who we are, but he doesn't. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. This is how he prayed. We can expect God to do great things for us. And here, this is even an high, a higher thing as Jesus is catching us up with him and saying, as I have believed God, you can believe God. This is a model for how true believers can draw on the power of God. And notice he even says, all your requests, whatever you ask, believe. And he's, he's basically saying here, if you have faith, the impossible can be achieved. Now, as we read the New Testament and we see, well, what's the focus of prayer in the New Testament? Well, the focus 
almost always, there's some prayer for protection as Paul asks for protection, but even that's protection so that the gospel might go forth. The concern is that all that Christ has accomplished in the cross and in his resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit would be applied in ever greater ways in our lives, that we would manifest God's grace in our lives to love one another and to uh, love others as well as we speak the gospel and live out the principles of the gospel. So we're praying for the application of Christ's redemption to us and in ever widening circles in the world. As Paul speaks of this in Colossians 1, he says, in the whole world, and that was the world as they knew around the Mediterranean basin, this gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, and he's continuing to pray that it would. If you, if, as you study Paul's prayers in the epistles, he's always praying that we might know more and more of the great grace that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we would be more and more the people of God to live out uh, that love, that grace. So this use of mountain is just, it's a proverb for the impossible. And faith is our choice to trust Christ despite everything to the contrary, to expect from him what we cannot expect anywhere else. And faith obviously is tightly connected to prayer. Faith believes enough to ask and to expect. Faith is our certainty of his steadfast love for us, the certainty that we have that he wants to do us good and will do us abundantly, abundant good. In the face of all of our weakness and failure, our poverty. So you see, faith is basically agreeing with God's character. It's falling in line with who we think God is. We see that God loves us so much, he gave his son for us while we were enemies. And we would take the next step as Paul does in Romans 8 and say, why, why he would give us anything. He would give us anything for our good. Let's go ask him for these things. Now, of course, this isn't some statement that run wild outside of God's will because there are passages like John that says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know we have it. But as we love him and adore him, we more and more fall in line with his will and his passions become our passions. His dreams for us become our dreams. His promises become our very life by which we draw near to God and believe those promises of what God will do for us. But brothers and sisters, the only restriction is God's sovereignty and that's no restriction whatsoever. Nothing is impossible. He can deal with any situation, any difficulty. He will always be acting to advance his salvation in his people's life. To be advancing our growth and our transformation and our unity and our 
ministry and worship and outreach and fellowship. Let's expect him to do great things for us, things that would be impossible otherwise. Isaiah 65, 24 has this great promise. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. What a great statement of God's absolute readiness, sitting almost on the edge of his seat, jumping in to answer our prayers before we even get finished, right? And we, if you're like me, I tend to think of the opposite, you know, trying to get his attention, hoping he's listening. I wonder where he is, all of this. That's such a, that's such a dishonor to him. It's such a statement that it's a refusal of his goodness. And then the last thing, it seems to come out of the blue, but it is so important as he talks about forgiveness here. And here's the point. If we have come to the place of brokenness, we've seen our sin, and we are trusting in the forgiveness that God offers in Christ, that humbles us, but it causes us to rejoice. And we so believe in his love to us and forgiveness in Christ, we really believe we have the favor of God. We really believe he's dedicated to our good. Now, think of how that will enable us to pray with expectancy. If, if you're trying to win God's favor, you can't pray with expectancy. But if you think I'm under his favor in Christ, then you begin to pray, expecting, not because you deserve it, because Christ has won it for you. That's why there's so much in the New Testament about what Christ has accomplished and the fact that we do have the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. All of these things, they're, they're the statements of what God will do for us. But here's the amazing thing. That same expectation because you've been forgiven is what enables you to forgive others. That's why those are not two different things. The same faith that expects God to continue his favor and pour out goodness in our lives is the faith that, that causes us to know our own sin and be forgiven and then to give that forgiveness to someone else. So that's why if I'm unable to forgive others, it could be a sign that I don't even understand that I'm forgiven. And I certainly won't be looking for God's goodness to me that I don't deserve. We can pray with the greatest expectation. And when we understand, as John says in John, 1 John 4, when we know and believe the love that he has for us, he then says, we love because he first loved us. So as we understand his love, we begin to love. As we taste his forgiveness, we forgive. May God grant that we will grow in the grace of his uh, love and forgiveness. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your great power. Lord, we thank you for this display of your being Messiah and Lord as you pronounce judgment upon uh, the Jewish nation at this time. And Lord, really, we can see that we are in them as well. Lord, we, we stand along with them of being under your judgment. 
And then, Lord Jesus, that you offer to Jew and Gentile forgiveness, the very, uh, the very place where you were crucified, Christ, uh, Peter announces the Lordship of Christ and offers freely to even those who may have participated in the crucifixion itself, the forgiveness that can be had in Christ Jesus. Lord, we all stand under the same need of, uh, of being sinners. We all can have the same grace uh, that uh, you provide in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you that you want all the nations, every person and each one of us to come and, and form a house of prayer together to be a community that believes in the great love that God has for us in Christ and expects you to do great things for us, not because we deserve it, but because of your great love for us in Christ. Lord, give us that happy, hopeful expectation in Christ, we pray. Amen.